So this story is familiar. It's, it's, it's probably, you know, I'm looking around the room, it's probably a couple of you have preached on this like a hundred times, know it back to front, all the rest of it, but it is a great story, and it's a significant story. You know, it's, it's one that, we, that Luke draws our eye to. Um, but just to, if you've not been with us in the story of us, just to, just to bring you back up to date, we've been just amazed at the way that this, this word, this mission, this message has gone out to the world. That's the story. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus tells the disciples to do in Matthew. And he says to them in Luke, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And we've remembered, you know, the first couple of weeks, remembered we saw this picture of the disciples that were just like fishermen, lots of them just fishermen. And there was this picture of them. I tried to hammer this home week one or two that they were just scared fishermen hiding out in a room. And we've got this story of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, I, think we've, I feel like we've really been drawn to this story over these last couple of weeks, the Holy Spirit just really working in the lives of these disciples. And you look at it on the one hand and you think this is a story about men and women who have a mission and then go out into the world and make this thing happen. And then on the other hand, you read it and you think, actually, no, read the story. This is the story of the work of the Holy Spirit alive in us. And we should be really challenged. I've been really challenged. I've been really challenged as to how I work out my faith. And how often I've got initiatives and ideas and plans and prospects and all the rest of it. And how when I read God's word, it's often the times when his spirit's speaking to me that we've got to listen in. It's God's spirit that changes us and molds us. And it changed the disciples. And this word is bursting out. And all of a sudden, remember the, the illustration, third time in a row that I used the other week about we're setting the lawn on fire. Remember this, this illustration? Just about the way that this message goes out and it's kind of unstoppable. And that's, that's, that's the point we're up to in the story. The message is bursting out through Jerusalem. I want us just to be a little bit aware of the way that Paul teaches. I think we've tried to reiterate this. You know, remember that this is a story. This is a narrative. So we've, I think week one, week two, and we've hit on this a couple of times, this idea that, that we, this, this debate, is Luke being prescriptive or is he being descriptive in how he writes his, his account? And at the end of the story, he's been both. This is a story, and we are wise to look at it like it's a story and try and observe it like it's a story. So there are themes in it that, that Luke puts that we, that we sort of jump upon. There's this idea of Christ suffering. There's all this detail of the story of Christ suffering. There's accounts that he's sent his disciples to go out. There's this picture of a united community. And we see all this stuff, and we think... Do I just, do I run and go and get a cross? Because he said this, do I go and run and pick up my cross? Because the story of Luke is about a man picking up a cross. Do I go and do that? Do I, because Boydie talked to us the other week about living as community, does that mean, because I've been thinking about this recently, they've got a good house of the Boyds. Do, do we all move in together? Is that, what, is that what he's getting at? Do we be dogmatic about it like this? Encourages us to share all our stuff. We've got this story of this that repeats over and over again. This united community, and there's all the way through the story, these guys never sit still. Does that mean that we have to go and get our sandals on and head off to the Middle East? Is that kind of what the narrative's saying? It's not really what it's saying. We have to call, hold it loosely. We have to look at it like a story. It is telling us stuff, though. We are, when we see this picture of Christ suffering, we are connected to this story. This is a story that's connected to us doesn't mean that we run off and grab the cross and crucify ourselves, but this is a story that we are connected to. There is 
an alignment with us in this story. Christ's suffering somewhere down the line. This, this is going to be a difficult story at some point. Somewhere down the line, we will look at our brother and our sister in the eye and we will want to share our stuff with them. We want to look after them. We might not want to move in with them. We might not want to do that, but we want to look after them because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is the way that Luke teaches us. And we see the message going out into the world. And I love the way that the Bible uses the word Gentiles. Like it's a, like it's a bunch of idiots who don't brush their teeth and don't know how to use the internet. Do you know what I mean? This idea. The Gentiles is all of us. Read this word in the Bible, you think, who are these people? The Gentiles are the idiots. It's, it's us. We're the idiots in the story. The word is going out from Jerusalem and it is reaching out to us. And over the last couple of weeks, we've sort of looked as the story has progressed. And we've seen it initially based in Jerusalem. Try and have this geographical picture in your mind. And then we see it spread out a little bit further onto the fringes of Jerusalem. And now we've reached, a, a you know, they're all crucial steps. But another crucial step, this message is going to burst out, and God is looking for a man through whom to burst it out, from whom to spread out this message for, and that's the story we're going to look at. It, reminded me, it reminds me a little bit of, of the idea of a kind of an ethnic minority family living in this little apartment that go out into the big city, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's them trying to sort of keep their culture alive. Do you know that way when you can imagine this ethnic minority family in, in the sort of flat in the home, and as you know, the conversation goes back and forth. They can talk about family. They've got a familiar frame of reference. They've got pictures on the wall that reminds them of their culture. And it kind of looks like one thing when it's in the flat. Then you go down the stairs, and there's a few people of similar ethnic background to you living in the apartments roundabout, and you share a few stories with them, but it's getting a bit different. Then you go out the door, and if you're in the city, you go down a few blocks, and then there's a nightclub over there. There's a pub over there, these people of different ethnic minorities over there, and this, this is what it's like in the story of Acts just now. The story has found itself established in Jerusalem, and this is one of the reasons why Acts is so crucial, so crucial that we get a handle on it, because it's, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the only book of the Bible where we see the gospel message transition through culture. We see it go out into another culture. So it starts firmly in Jerusalem, and if you if you're like really keen on reading the Book of Acts, if you've just not had enough of the series, go home and read through some of Stephen's sermons, and read through Peter's sermons. And the sermons are kind of based on the fact, like that you're in the apartment and you know the backstory, and it's the story. It is the story. But this is where this. So Stephen will remind us about this that we're waiting for a Messiah, and he'll go. It's a, you know it's a history lesson in Judaism, and it's all based on this familiarity. And the story of Acts progresses. There is a transition. The story bursts out of the flat, it goes down the street, and the Apostle Paul is in Greece, is in Athens, is in all these places where there are Jews, but there are lots of non-Jews. Now, it's the same message, but the wonderful thing we get to see is this transition. So, Paul's sermons are a bit different. They still talk about Christ being the Messiah. He's still heading in direction, that's still important. One of the things I think we struggle with as church not us, hopefully not us, but church generally for the last 2,000 years is that we think everybody speaks Bible. Come to church long enough, you just think everybody speaks Bible. You think you look around, everybody's got the same backstory as me, everyone's got the same familiarity as me. It's a huge problem for us as church. 
One of the reasons that we need to dive into Acts as Christians is because we see what it looks like when the story transitions out of people who know the backstory of the Bible, Acts chapter 1, verse through to Acts chapter 12, and then we get to a bunch of people around the world who don't know the backstory of the Bible, and we get to see what it looks like for them. And I've just clocked the clock, and don't worry, I'm, gonna, I'm, not, gonna, I'm not gonna keep you here all night. It's a great story. I will speed up big time. So we've got this, this, this message that's going out, and God needs a man for this message. God needs a man for this message. In fact, a verse, I want you to have take-home verse. I like to give you a take-home verse. It's verse 15. You don't have to put it up there. We're going to look at a slide in a second. This man, God saying to Ananias when he's cowering about whether he should go or not, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. This man is my chosen instrument. This is the guy. So the question I want you to have in your mind is, if Paul is the instrument, what is the tune of the church? Think about the character of Paul. If this man is the instrument, what is the tune of the church? It's important, isn't it, to, that when we are selling a product, if any of the, those of you know enough about marketing, it's important that we have the right face to fit the product, isn't it? It's, it's massively important these days. That's, you know that is, don't you? That's Mr. Clooney, and he's selling his Amiga watch. And when you buy a watch like that, the company are not just expecting you to have a reliable timepiece, although I'm sure that it is a reliable timepiece. You take something of the glory and the wonder of Mr. George Clooney with you onto your wrist, don't you? You get something of the warm sea breeze in your hair. You get something of the swagger. You look down at your watch and you imbibe it. And the company are saying, yeah, get this watch. You'll have a bit of this. Ladies will come flocking to you when you put this watch on. And it's the same Oh, this is another image. So this is Kira Knightley, and she's selling her Chanel on her motorbike. And it's the same when you, when you dab a little bit of this on your neck. I think that's where you put your perfume, isn't it? I don't wear perfume or aftershave very much, actually. But this is, you know, you put it up there, and you're not just hoping that you're going to smell a bit better. You're hoping that you're going to be sort of, you get something of the, the aura of Kira Knightley. And on the advert, she's flying around in Paris, and you kind of pop this on, you think, yeah, I'm going to grab a little bit of that. You know, this night out in Paris, you know, this adventure of life and all this sort of stuff, you grab a little bit of that. And the company wants you to pick up on that. They're selling it and they're saying, look at this person and this product. And it's important who the person is. And the question that we've got in front of us is that God, the Lord, says to Ananias, this guy, Paul, this guy is my chosen instrument. This guy. Let's take a look at this guy. And I'll be really quick, so stick with it. Stick with the story. First of all, Dr. Luke brings us here, I think. He doesn't let us off the hook with this. this is, there's not a lot of events that are mentioned three times in the Bible. There's not a lot of occasions when we get the message repeated three times. I mean, in separate books, we get the story of Christ and his crucifixion, all the rest of it. Creation, there are two accounts of creation. There are a few stories that get the repetition treatment, but this story gets three accounts. Three accounts. That's a lot of paperwork. And we know, because we know a little bit about Dr. Luke, we know that he's not just trying to fill up his scrolls. He's not just trying to get the book out. Do you know what I mean? This is important stuff. Remember what it says, what Luke says about his account in the start of the book of Luke. He says, I want to write an ordered account so you can be certain about this. Luke is careful He's collected, he's gathered, and he's purposeful when he writes this book. He's a doctor. 
the doctor says something to you once, even doctors look really young to me. Everybody looks young in these professions. Doctors look really young. Even the really young doctors, they tell you something once. You know that they've, they've thought about it and you listen to it. When a doctor tells you something three times, it's measured, it's important. And Luke says, look at this story of this incredible change round. It's really important. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul is he's mad, isn't he? There's no other way to look at it. He's raging mad. And maybe... Let's put ourselves in his shoes or his sandals for at least a second. It must have been hard for him. This is his whole life, being an orator, being an expert in the law. This is his whole life. This is what he does for a job. And he has to stand there and watch Peter, the fisherman, and his mates, uneducated idiots, through his eyes, speak beautiful words of life, take the Bible, make it come alive, have thousands of people flock there, and listen to them. That's enough to make you mad. Doesn't that make you mad when somebody who really shouldn't be good at something ends up being ace at it? Doesn't that just make your blood boil? Probably not enough to make Paul's blood boil to the extent that it was boiling. Because Paul's not an idiot. You read a bit of the backstory about Paul. He grew up in Tarsus. He's, you know, he's, got, this, he's got the Roman heritage and history, but he's also been exposed, you know, post-Alexander the Great's empire, he's got Greek culture flowing through his veins, and then his mum and dad, probably around the age of 14, send him down to Jerusalem to the best guy, Gamaliel, and say, you sit there and learn at his feet. This guy's smart. He's not just an angry idiot. This guy's smart, and he really believes that he's right. This is, in his eyes, this is a just cause. He believes in the God of Deuteronomy that says there's just one God, and he can't look past that, and he can't think about that mean anything else. And this idea of Messiah, he just says, no, this Jesus isn't him, and, and whoever's following him are just heading off in the wrong direction. He's raging mad. He walks 150 miles to Damascus to chase down Christians on the off chance that there are Christians there. Who walks 150 miles that's sin to do anything? Who walks five miles when they're angry? Do you know what I mean? Who does that? This is absolute rage. And we read about him going around house to house. And, what he, and we, have this, we have this colorful image of him because we know it ends well. But let's forget how it ends for Paul. Let's think about how it starts. He is raging, raging mad. What does God do to him? You know this story pretty well. The lights flash. He's on his journey up to Damascus. And he, I imagine him walk, walking like hard pressed, just focused on being angry, just ready to get to Damascus and rip up the people that are there. And all of a sudden, the lights flash around him. And whenever I've watched this, on, I don't think that films ever get this right. Maybe some films get it right. You know when they have the voice of God or the voice of Jesus? I, I love these biblical biopic films, but whenever they do this, I'm always like, no, don't, don't, do, don't have a guy with greatly shampooed hair and perfect teeth you know, with a white gown. Don't do that. Don't have that guy. Maybe it was like that. I don't know. But the voice comes out. Why are you persecuting me? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Go to Damascus, and you will be told what to do. God does something with Saul. Don't know that he does it with all of us. Does it with a lot of characters in the Bible. Saul gets to Damascus, and he's 
in his mind's eye, he's going to get there and he's going to be the guy. He's going to walk in with the robes on. He's got the papers from the priest to go and arrest whoever he wants. He's got the authority. He's the top dog. He's the top guy. And yet, because of what God does to him, because God stalls him, he walks in blinded, doesn't he, in the story. Can you imagine the sort of humiliation that brings to a guy? He was going to walk in, charging in there, grabbing the guys and bringing them back. And instead of doing that, he's blinded. He's got people leading him in. And when he gets into Damascus, he finds a house on, on Straight Street. And because he's blinded, he just stays there. He doesn't eat or drink anything. And he's just got one thing on his mind for three days, this voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Incredible, I think, what God does to him. This guy... The Apostle Paul is going to do some amazing things. He's going to write a book that we will speak about for the next, well, forever. He has eternal consequences. He will speak the name of Jesus before kings and leaders. He will be brave before the Lord. He will see a vision of heaven, and yet he will do nothing. He will do none of this until God has brought him low and humbled him and stilled his heart. I don't think, I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul wanted but it's what he needed to happen. He would never, ever have seen Jesus when his ego and his career was way up there. God had to bring him down. Lord, we would never want, I don't think, for God to still us in this way, but sometimes in different events of life, it's the only way that we do end up ever seeing him, isn't it? When you're humbled, how differently do you look at the world when you're humbled? How hard is it to be still these days? Anyone manage to be still? You can... Like physically be still and then you try and still your mind and you can't stop thinking about the TV or Facebook or anything else. And God's word says to us over and over again, the pattern in God's Bible so often is, man, you need to be humbled. And probably to do that, I'm going to have to still you for a little while. All the characters that you see through the story of the Old Testament, the New Testament, God humbles them and he stills them. And we can't be still and we're so proud. And so often that's what God's got in store for us. If we want to be people of his story, so then we've got Ananias. And I love the character of Ananias. He's just, he's like a lot of the characters in Acts, he just flits in and out. And you want to know, part of me wants to write, you know, maybe I'll ask in heaven, I'll say, well, what happened to him? Where did, Anan- you know, where did Ananias go? He seemed like an awesome guy. Ananias has got this massive problem. Verse 11, the Lord told him, and you imagine how you know, Saul's gone around, charging around, just, just angry, just raging mad, killing people. Saul's charging around, and Ananias gets this message from the Lord. It's not the message you want. Sometimes you want to say to God, I would think Ananias wants to say to God, I think you've got the wrong idea here, God. But it's not really something you can say to God, is it? The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus called Saul. Because he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I love this. I wonder how earnestly he's saying this. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's saying, I don't want to do this, God. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests, he's going to kill me, God, to arrest all who call on your name. And the Lord says to Ananias, and here's the verse, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. One of, the, one of the things you get to see when you do the overview of Acts is the way that the Spirit moves in this story. And you can see very clearly, you're like, okay, it's here in Jerusalem, this is God's story, and it's spreading here. 
and it's God's spirit that's moving it. And then it's spreading down to Africa through the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's God's spirit that's spreading it. And now it's spreading up to Rome because Paul's going to get his act together, and it's God's spirit that's spreading it. But in our lives, we don't always see that journey, do we? We don't always see the story. And, and we, see, we see looking from a distance the story of Ananias, and we're saying, go, go to Saul, because we know how the story goes. We know that it's going to reach the whole world from here on in. We know that this is important. We know that this is significant. And in our own lives, often I think and I find we don't have that perspective of the story. One of the things that Acts says to us is this is the story. This is the big story. The story of how God's word spreads to the world. The story of God's grace to the world is the story. It's not whether you can get your kids down to swimming. It's not if Donald Trump's going to come good in the end or anything like that. It's nothing like that. The story of the world is the story of God rescuing his people. That is the story. And you want to shout to Ananias, go Ananias, because that is the story. Often, when God works in our lives, you know, when, he, when, there's, that, when there's just that moment where we're challenged about how we're living, or, you know, we're just encouraged to go and speak to somebody and share our faith, we just dismiss it as a significant step, don't we? We just think, nah, the big stories are Trump and the news and work and life and nine to five and survival and all the rest of it. And actually, the big story is God bothering to speak into your life and the gospel message going out more and more. And I've kind of been challenged over, over the last seven or eight weeks as I've read Acts and I've seen the seemingly insignificant way that God moves massively in his spirit. And I've just been stunned at how many times I've ignored it. And it's a great challenge to us, I think. So he's got this walk. I don't, I don't know where Ananias lived. I know, I've, I've Googled where Straight Street was in Damascus, so I know where he's going. I don't know how far it was. But whenever I've had one of these journeys and I've had to go see somebody I really don't want to see, I, have you ever done this where you've, just, you've wanted to go see him and then you've done another trip around the block? Do you know what I mean? You get there, you think, I'm, I'm going to rethink this in terms of what I'm going to say to this guy. I'm going to go around the block. And I imagine Ananias going around the block a few times and just saying to God, are you, sh- are you sure it's this guy? This, this guy? You want me to go and see this guy, this guy. You know this guy. You know, I can see him saying it over and over again. This guy. And he goes around the block again. This guy. Because it's a lot to take in, isn't it? And I'm going to try and be a bit provocative here. But appointing the Apostle Paul as the, as the chosen instrument for God's holy people, as the representative for God's holy people, it's a bit like Stalin becoming CEO at Mothercare or King John Ill getting the job as Crime Watch presenter or something like that, which seemed like outrageous statements. And I had, other, I had other more strong and provocative examples, and I ditched them on account of my reputation and all the rest of it. But it's true, isn't it? It's not nearly provocative enough. The Apostle Paul, look at the story. He was a mad, bad, blood-on-his-hands murderer. And God says to Ananias, this is the guy. This is my chosen instrument. Why on earth should it be this guy? Ananias gets to the house, puts his hands and fingers on Paul's eyes, restores his sight. And to cut to the chase of the story, Paul is a changed man. We read some of his letters later on. He goes from being the angriest guy we just about read about in the Bible to being a guy who talks about being overfilled with joy. He says, he tells everyone, rejoice, rejoice. There's so much to be glad about. It's amazing. He just changes. He's a man of privilege that becomes really poor, and he's not bothered about it. He's a man of position 
who loses all his position, and he says, no, this is fine. It's for God's glory. And Paul, after this encounter, we read about him going straight out preaching the Word of God. He spends the rest of his life trying to prove to people why he was wrong and the truth about who God is. So the question we're left with, I've got three really super quick points. I'm going to like fly through them. If Paul is the instrument, what is the tune? What is the tune that the church is playing? Paul is the instrument because the tune of the church is grace. Yeah, Paul is a, he's stacked up with good genes for being clever. He's been really well taught. But the reason God picked him out is because every, everywhere that Paul goes around to preach, he stands there and talks about forgiveness and he talks about a good God and a good way. And everybody that he meets at the doorstep look at him and go, you're Saul. And he doesn't even need to say, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm a bad guy. His whole preach, his whole story, his whole life is laced with, on the one hand, the horrific past that he's got. It's just overt. You can see it. He doesn't have to say it. And he does say it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You've seen the text on the motorway, perhaps, haven't you? That text always misses out the most important part for me, of whom I am the worst. He is the worst. They've got, on the one hand, the overt nature of Saul's life, and on the other hand, this joy is experiencing. And all that it points towards, what it shows us, is, is the tune of the church is grace. That is our story. It shapes us. It defines us. There's a great verse that Paul goes on to write later on. I think it's one of those verses that I'm not sure we always get our head around right. He said, God works all things together for good for those called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28, if you want to check it out. And what it doesn't mean is that it's all going to be great right now. We often say that, don't we? God works all things, you know, when we have a good moment, we say, oh, God works all things together for good for those who love him. It doesn't mean we're not going to ever look back and squirm at our past. It doesn't mean that the picture of our lives isn't going to be really awful and difficult to look at. Do you ever look, look back into things that you've done wrong and you think, I can't even really focus on that moment because it's so bad. I, can't, I don't think about it too much. It's not saying that that's the case. It's saying that God is, in his grace, through the horrible stuff that we've done, making and painting a beautiful picture of our life. The end result for the Apostle Paul, even though he's got blood on his hands, is that people see a picture of grace in him. Our past doesn't rule us out from being an instrument of God. It just means he's got the chance to paint a more beautiful picture of us. The second thing, and I think it's really, you know, Luke really wants Theophilus, the guy who he's writing to, to really get ahead on this one. With God, dramatic change is possible. Now he does... When he's trying to really explain that this is definitely a work of God, often in the storyline, he'll make it really clear that there's been two separate visions. You know, the Apostle Paul's had a vision, Ananias has had a vision. This is not a work of man. We're to definitely understand this as God's work. And that's how he wants Theophilus to see it. He wants him to see the fact that this ruler, this important guy, has had his life unbelievably turned around. Now, you've got to imagine his circumstance, Theophilus, living in, under the empire of Rome, where the Romans have all the sway and they're just killing Christians for fun, chopping them in two, hanging them up, throwing them to the lions, all this massive oppression. 
And Luke wants Theophilus to know. He says, look, this is what God does. This is what God can do. This is a work of God. It's not anybody else. God can turn people around dramatically. One of the things that we've got to remember, I think, in this world that seems so clearly defined by other things is that it's all actually a spiritual battle and that God can and will and did with the Roman Empire, although Theophilus didn't live to see it, turn things around in an incredible way. And the last point, and we'll close with this, is that the Bible doesn't, apart from one guy, the Bible doesn't show us people that are perfect, but it does show us people that are changing. It shows ways in which God is working in people's lives and being changed to be different. I guess sometimes we look at the story of the Apostle Paul and we see it as a bit of a tada moment. We look at the road to Damascus and we go, oh, he had his moment and then he's completely different and good again. And he's got it all together and he's got it all sewn up and sorted out. Well, there was a bit of a tada moment. It was a big deal. I'm not going to diminish that. But you read through, read through Paul's book of Romans, this masterpiece, and then this chapter in the middle, chapter 7, where he says, yeah, I know all this. I figured it all out and I'm still messing up. All the things I want to do, I don't do. I'm still a sinner. And his life is turned around, but it's a life that he has to keep working on. And God works at him and works at him and works at him. And often with us, I think sometimes, often with us, often with me, I'm hoping that God's going to have got it cracked by now. Do you know what I mean? He's going to have got me together. And I've had the tada moment, and now everything's fine, and it's smooth. And the next day or the next week, I lose my temper, or I mess up, or I do something wrong, or I forget to pray for a week, and I find myself preaching again. But the story of the characters of the Bible is that God is working in their life, working out their story and seeing them change.